Hey, well, good morning, Bethel. I want to add my welcome to Heather's welcome. We're glad you're here. I want to get into Habakkuk this morning. We're in the second week of our study in Habakkuk, and we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2 today. And so if you remember from last week, the, the big idea, so when we look at Habakkuk, he's this Old Testament prophet, and he's writing at a time when things around him are, are falling apart. The nation that he lives in, the nation of God's people, they are, they're crumbling morally. They're crumbling from the inside out. And, and not only that, on the, on the outside, the, the threats are, um, outside their borders, the threats are, are coming in. And so Habakkuk is writing in this time and he feels this incredible insecurity and this incredible disruption that's about to take place. And so one of the things that we said last week is that true faith, and that's, that's what Habakkuk is demonstrating. He, he's a, a man that has true faith in God at the same time honest and um, um, an honest confusion, and, and he's struggling with the chaos that's going on around him. But what we said is that true faith often finds itself baffled and, and bewildered at God, and sometimes finds that the answers that God gives raises even more questions, creates sometimes more problems for those with faith. And so that's Habakkuk. And so a little bit of a review, the outline of the book, we said, it, it reads a little bit like Habakkuk's journal. He, he's, he's journaling through the pain. He's journaling through the crisis. And, and he's journaling in the presence of God. And so the outline is that Habakkuk's going to complain, and then God's going to answer. And Habakkuk's going to complain again, and then God answers again. And then, well, next week we'll get to chapter 3. And what Habakkuk basically says, and this is where we left it off last week, at the end of chapter one, he says, God, look, here's, here's what my questions are, and, and, and you know the answers. And then in, in chapter two, verse one, he says, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to take my watch. I'm going to wait and see how it is that you're going to answer. I want you to tell me what to do. I, I want to understand more about what it is that you're doing. And, and if you, if you just answer me, if you just come in, if you give me a little bit of insight, I'll wait. I'm waiting for that. And what we said is that this is a demonstration of Habakkuk's faith. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of all the chaos, he's still going to God. I'm confused but you tell me how it's going to go, and I'll sit and wait for how you're going to work. Well, God's going to show up, and here in Habakkuk 2, we're going to see what God's answer is. And basically, he's going to say, okay, Habakkuk, here's the deal. Um, you guys are bad, and I'm going to discipline you for your sins, and there's going to be consequences. And the people that I'm going to use to discipline you, these Babylonians, they're wicked too, but, but don't worry about it. I'm going to deal with them as well. I deal with all people. I deal with all sin. It's all a part of my big plan. So if you'll look with me, I'm going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2. I want to read the first couple of verses. And here's God's answer to Habakkuk's question. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. See, in here in verse 2, um, what God tells Habakkuk is, so here's the vision, and I want you to write it down. And the word there is the same word for revelation. This is God's word to Habakkuk and God's word to his people. He wants Habakkuk to preserve it. He wants this to be recorded. The vision that he's actually going to give him is in verses 4 through 20. Here in verses 2 and 3, he's telling him, hey, I want you to write it down. And in verse 3, he says, this is coming. And it may seem like it's slow to you, Habakkuk. But listen, the, the time is appointed. It is sure. It is certain. It is coming. You know, in uh, the New Testament, the apostle Peter, he writes a letter and in in his letter in 1 Peter, what he says is, is that some people, some people think that God is slow. And Peter's going to say, look, God's not slow. What he is, God is patient. He's waiting for people to repent. He, he waits for people to respond to him. Here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, what God's saying is the time is coming. It's not now, but it will come. And he's going to allude to, he's going to point us to the time that comes in the end. Now, look at verses 4 and 5 with me. In verse 4, he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. This, this um, his there, his soul, he's talking about Babylon. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. You can think of these verses, verses 4 and 5, as the introduction to the vision proper. God is setting this up. In verse 4, um, as, as Habakkuk has, has asked, you know, so how are believers, how are, how are those that are righteous in Habakkuk's day, the, the remnant, how are they supposed to face this devastation that Babylon's going to bring to their nation? And, and God's answer to Habakkuk is that the righteous, they're going to go on living by their faith. And that's the key to God's answer. So you find this, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, you find it quoted in the Old Testament in three very significant places. This, this um, little phrase that Habakkuk records, this obscure prophet in the seventh century, in the midst of this incredible uncertainty and confusion, it becomes one of the cornerstones of the New Testament. You find it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. You find it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. You find it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The righteous live by faith. It's a contrast to the proud. You see, in the context of Habakkuk, here's what God's saying. There's two kinds of people. He's saying, see this one, this, this Babylon, this uh, Babylon that, that represents really all of mankind. He's puffed up. He's, he's proud. This person isn't um, right with God. There's pride and um, his desires are not upright. And, and if you're proud, 
Your desires are all crooked. But the righteous, they will live by faith. Two kinds of people. People who trust themselves, God says, or people that trust in me. People who, who trust me. They're, they're humble. That, that's what it means to trust me is that there's a humility. People who trust themselves, people who trust themselves are proud. And your life is either bent out to God or it's bent inwards towards you. That's life. And in verse 5, he talks about the issue of pride and he gets into the different ways that pride manifests itself in our life. And now here's what God's saying, in essence, to Habakkuk about the questions he has. What God is saying to Habakkuk is, yes, I know. I know that it blows your mind that I'm going to use Babylon as the means, as the instrument of, uh, of this discipline towards Judah. But, but look, Babylon will come like a mirror. I'm, I'm going to hold up a mirror to the wickedness of my people. The, the mirror is Babylon, the most ruthless and wicked and bloodthirsty people, nation on the whole earth. And you see, what you're going to see when I hold up this mirror is, is you're going to see Babylon. What you should see when I hold up the mirror is you should see my glory. I created you to reflect my glory. I created you in my image. I created you to rule with justice and compassion, to be people of grace and humility. But that's not who you are. You look more like the Babylonians than you look like me. So in some ways, what God's doing, he's telling Habakkuk, because I'm handing, handing my people, God's people, I'm handing them over to themselves. And what he wants is he wants for them to repent. He wants them to, to turn away from themselves and turn to him in faith, not to live in their own strength and not to live in their own pride, um, not to pursue their own satisfaction. He wants them to turn to him and live by faith. And that's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be in right relationship with God, to humbly trust him, to be acceptable and pleasing. That's what it means to trust, to have faith. Habakkuk, this seems terrible. I know it. But for you and, and for my people, it's a terrible thing, but it's not a final thing. This discipline, it's, meant, it's gonna be meant to turn your heart back to back to me, to, to pry your hands off the pride in your life and by faith, trust me. It's a terrible thing. It's a hard thing and, you, and you're going to suffer, but it is not a final thing. This is not a final judgment, Habakkuk. The plans I have for you, they're beautiful. The, the plans I have for you, they're eternal. The plans I have for you are beyond what you can fully comprehend. And in fact, what we see is that in Habakkuk chapter 3, next week we'll look at it. Habakkuk's going to finally get it. Habakkuk will understand. His perspective is going to be radically altered. You know, I want to suggest to you this morning that this is what crisis does. It's what, it's what suffering does. It's, it's what the difficult things that we endure in life, it's what it does. It radically alters our perspective you see, the disruption that comes in our earthly life, it is part of our spiritual transformation. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When these 
hardships and these sufferings come into our life, they are part of the transformation that God has designed. You see, for believers, it can be corrective. It's part of our, of our discipline and our maturing, our becoming more like Christ. And when I say discipline, I, I mean it in a neutral way. I mean, discipline can mean correction. It can mean consequences. Discipline can also mean to, to be instructed or to be educated or to be trained. You know, discipline, sometimes it comes as a consequence. There, there's cause and effect in discipline. If you're a parent or you have parents, you understand this. As a child, my mother had to become very skilled at discipline, and I gave her lots of opportunities to hone that skill. Each of my children, in turn, have provided me opportunities to gain that skill. And for a parent, however, discipline, it feels terrible for the child. It's an act of love on the parent's part. You know, the statement, it'll this will hurt me more than it hurts you as a child. That, that sounds like the dumbest thing you've ever heard. And as a parent, you realize that there's never been anything more true. You know, sometimes it, discipline takes the form of, of correction of, or, or a consequence. Sometimes discipline takes the form of training, of preparation, of, of maturity. I have a friend, he's going to be attending West Point. And uh, listen, that place is hardcore. You just don't show up at college at West Point uh, like you would show up at a state college. And, and there's, so there's preparation. Some of that preparation's planned. You gotta get in shape and run miles and lift weights and eat healthy and sleep on a schedule and, and stuff like that. And, you, and you, you deny yourself some things in order to take hold of better things. At the same time, some of that preparation's not planned. At, at least you know, of what we would call planned. Some of that preparation is what I would call ordained. My friend who's going to West Point, he's experienced both. There's been planned preparation. There's also been ordained preparation that's come into his life. And so I want to suggest this, and I want you to hear me carefully because I want to speak about this carefully. When something radical shows up to absolutely disrupt our life, it is wise for us as believers to pay attention. I believe it is wise for God's people to sit up and to, and to pay attention. You see, God told Habakkuk plainly, he said, look, I, I'm doing this. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Th this is me. This is my doing. And from the pages of Scripture, we can confidently say, we can confidently assert that nothing comes into the believer's life that has not passed through the sovereign hands of God. Even things that have evil as their origin. Even things that an enemy may come at us with all their wicked intentions. So hear this. Listen, we have an enemy. We have an unseen enemy, but one who is very real. And the Bible calls him Satan and the devil and the adversary and the enemy. And death is an enemy. The Bible tells us death and, and all the weapons that death uses, sickness and, and tragedy, the, the, the sting of death, the Bible says is sin. Death is our enemy. 
You know, the New Testament addresses this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that Christ has been raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Hebrews 2 tells us Jesus took on flesh. The, the Son of God came in our likeness. He, he came in the flesh so he could die. It says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So back to 1 Corinthians, Paul, he, he declares Christ was dead, but he was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. And he's the first. He's the first fruit of resurrection. And when he returns, all who by faith are in Christ, they'll be raised from the dead to new life. And then the end comes. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And then in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Revelation chapter 20, near the end of the Bible, the, the, the end that John records the vision of death being defeated. Death is handed back over everyone that, that he's taken Death is undone. Death is replaced with life. It, death is replaced by resurrection. And then death, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death is thrown into hell. The enemy death is defeated. And, and so these enemies, Satan, he's defeated. He'll be ultimately defeated. Death has been defeated by Christ in resurrection and will be ultimately defeated at the final resurrection of all believers. And in the meantime, while they are still our enemies, they still seek to devour us, they're on borrowed time, and they are not ultimate, nor are they final for the believer. So I say that to say, even when evil comes, or suffering, and sin, and, and wicked things that the enemy would use to disrupt our lives, this does not come to us first without having passed through the sovereign hands of God. And Jesus reigns over our enemies. And at the end, when the end comes, all wrongs will be undone. Um, Tolkien, in The Lord of the Rings, in The, in the Return of the King, there is this great line, this, this great paragraph. Sam Gamgee sees, seeing Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but, but then I thought I, I, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And this great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he says it this way. Some mortals say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You know, in Revelation, the last word 
from God in Revelation is Jesus declaring, surely I am coming soon. To which John cries out, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the things that disrupt our lives, things that are planned, things that are ordained, even things that have come from our enemies, God does not waste one moment of it. He intends it for our good. So whether it's discipline as a consequence or, or discipline that leads to maturity, and we, and we don't always know, and it, sometimes it's both, and, and, but we know either way. Whatever has come, it has come through the hands of our loving God who will never leave us and never forsake us. The God who said in Romans uh, that nothing can separate, nothing can separate you from his love for those that are in Christ Jesus. So when disruption comes, when life is turned upside down, whether it's a global pandemic or an economic crisis or diagnosis or suffering or, or pain or, or depression, I, I want, we, we want to listen to it. We want to hear it. We want to trust God for what he's doing, even when we don't understand, especially when we don't understand. You see, this is what God's saying to Habakkuk. He wants him to write it down. Habakkuk... Um, and, and, you know, for Habakkuk and for God's people, Babylon, that this is their discipline. It's a severe discipline. It's going to be consequence for their sin and idolatry and consequence for their pride and their selfishness and consequence for pursuing life on their own, own terms. But listen to this. This is not judgment for God's people because this is not the end. There, there is an end that is going to come. God's going to talk about it. He talks about it all through the Bible. There is a judgment that will come. And God gives us a glimpse of the judgment to come. But this, this for Israel is discipline. It's not judgment. The judgment is now going to be pronounced in Habakkuk. And I want you to see he's going to pronounce five woes on Babylon. Look at verse 6. I'll just highlight some of these. This is what it says in verse 6. He says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffings and riddle for him and, and say, and then, and then verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Then skip down to verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. And then in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And then verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You're, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And then finally in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, awake. So one of the things I want you to notice about these verses, particularly beginning in verse 6, is I want you to notice the form, I want you to notice the content, and then I want to talk about the fulfillment. The form here, uh, the form is satire. It's, it's, a, it's a taunt. He, they're, they're taunting. They're, they're singing. And, and the way that verse 6 envisions it is that the nations that have been run over, the, the ones that have been destroyed by Babylon in the end at the judgment, 
They're going to taunt. They're going to scoff. They're going to sing these songs over Babylon that's going to finally get what it is they have coming to them. These nations are going to be singing taunts, these woes to Babylon that's going to finally end up being judged. Well, that's the form that it takes. The content, what God's communicating is a judgment against Babylon. That, That while Babylon may have been used by God as an instrument for a season, they are going to answer for their wickedness. They're going to answer for their ruthlessness and their violence and their um, bloodthirsty rage, particularly against God's people. The arrogance and the pride of Babylon will be smashed and defeated by God. Well, I want to talk about the fulfillment. Pay attention to this. When does this happen? Well, there's two answers to that. The first answer is that there's a partial fulfillment that comes. There's a partial fulfillment that happens in history. In fact, you can turn over to to Daniel chapter 5, the the writing on the wall in Daniel, and you you can know that in Daniel chapter 5, scholars have dated it to the exact day, October 12th, 539 B.C., Babylon, the the empire of Nebuchadnezzar falls. It it, it rises, it burns bright, and then it's going to burn out. Babylon will be destroyed and the glory of Babylon reduced to a few artifacts in a museum buried under centuries of of history waiting for archaeologists to dig it up with shovels. That's the partial fulfillment. And that did happen. But greater than that, what God is referring to is he's referring to a final fulfillment, a final judgment that is to come. You see, Babylon in the pages of Scripture, both a a very real place with a a real people and real live wicked leaders, um, Babylon, but also you find that Babylon, it shows up in Genesis chapter 11, right at the very beginning. It's where the people of the earth, they they gathered in rebellion against God to to build a tower to the heavens, to to make their own way, to, to be their own gods. You know it as the Tower of Babel. See, Babel, literally, it means gate of God or or gateway to God. However, the the name's actually a joke. In Genesis 11, God makes it the place of confusion. You see, God says about Babylon in Habakkuk 1.11 that they're guilty men whose own might is their God. They they worship themselves. They, They seek their own way to God. They see themselves as God, but in truth, It's utter chaos. It's utter confusion. You see, Babylon's there in Genesis 11, the the height of man's rebellion against God. And then Babylon also appears at the end. At the time of judgment, it's the ultimate fulfillment that God's pointing to here in Habakkuk. The ultimate judgment is coming. If you were to turn to Revelation 18, you find Babylon being taunted there. You see, Babylon's the world. It's the world power. It's the world system. It's, it's the fallen world under the influence of, of who Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the, the prince of the power of the air, under the rule of Satan. You see, the enemy, the spiritual forces of evil, all those who live in rebellion against God, who, who reject his son Jesus, 
who reject Jesus as the Christ. That's Babylon. And in Revelation 18, the picture is that the world's gathered by the enemy to wage war against the Lamb of God and an angel's unleashed from heaven, shining bright with God's glory and, and speaking with all of God's authority. And the angel begins to shout to the earth, to Babylon, and, and taunts Babylon. And the song that the angel sings is like the greatest hits of the Old Testament. All the wickedness and all the evil and all the suffering, it's going to be judged. And the, and the words from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Hosea and Joel and Zechariah and Habakkuk come flowing from the angel's mouth. All of God's divine patience and prolonged grace all of the judgment that God promised, all the judgment that's been, that he's been warning the world about for centuries and millennia, all of it's coming to its final end. The woes will be ultimately and finally fulfilled. That the wrath of God is going to be poured out. The picture is that Jesus comes on a white horse, and from his mouth this sharp sword, and you can understand that as, as the word of God. The, the word of God, with the word of God, Jesus strikes down the nation, and Babylon will be defeated, and Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, and his enemies will be at his feet, and the king will return, and everything sad will come untrue. And then there's this great scene, this unbelievable scene. In Revelation 19, what happens is that heaven, it, it erupts and there's shouting and there's, and there's worship. And, and, and the picture is the marriage supper, the, the great supper, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bible calls it. And believers are, are seated and a, and a banquet is set. And John, the writer, he's so overwhelmed with the vision that he's seeing. He, he, he can't even describe it and he doesn't know what to do. And so what he does in seeing this vision, this victory, this banquet, this Lamb of God, he, he falls at the feet of this angel who is his tour guide because he feels like he needs to worship. Well, the angel says, get up, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant created by God. Worship God. That's who we worship, John. Well, from the marriage supper of the Lamb, the scene changes immediately in Revelation 19, and the scene, it changes to this, to this other feast. A another feast is being prepared, and, and this is unbelievable. Jesus has slain the enemy and Babylon's defeated and the great wrath of the almighty God has been poured out in judgment and, and the battlefield's covered with flesh and blood and God's enemies and, and then the angel shows up and, and calls out with a loud voice to all the birds of the air to come and to gather for what he calls the great supper of God. And the birds fill the air. And they descend on the battlefield and they devour the flesh of enemies and the mighty Babylon defeated by Jesus with the word of God. And it says this, that the birds were gorged with their flesh. Tell me you don't love the Bible. Tell me the word of God isn't relevant, that it's, that it's boring. You see, to Habakkuk, God declares these woes that will come upon Babylon. Habakkuk, I know you don't understand what I'm doing. I know that. But hear this, Habakkuk. My plans for you are meant for your ultimate good, your eternal good. And now for a time, you and, 
And my people, they're going to know my hand of discipline, but my love will never fail. My, my love will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And Babylon, oh, Babylon's going to face my judgment. Babylon's going to face my wrath. So I encourage you to read through the woes. A key one to give you a flavor in Habakkuk 2, 14 through 16, God says his, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. You know, Habakkuk 2, 14 to 17 reminds us of this. There are three worldwide judgments that the Bible talks about. The first one you know is the flood during Noah's time. The, the second one is the one that Habakkuk here envisions. It's, it's the one that comes at the end, the one that when Babylon's finally and ultimately defeated and the wrath of God is poured out like a foaming cup of wine onto his enemies. But the second of the three worldwide judgments happens in between those two. And the one I'm talking about is the cross. You see, at the cross, what God does is he pours out all of that judgment on his son, Jesus. See, what, what happens is, is that Jesus came into the world. He, he came into the flesh, stepped out of heaven and into history. And he came to take your place because the truth is we're all enemies of God. The truth is by our nature, we're all Babylon. No one is righteous, Paul will say. No, not one. And so Jesus came to be our substitute. He came to take our place, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, the, the, the blameless and spotless for the sinful and the stained. What Jesus does on the cross is he took the cup of God's wrath. He drank it for us. That's why Jesus, when he's in the garden, says, Father, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? You see, so that we could be transferred in essence from, from Babylonians to sons and, and daughters of the, of the living God, so, so, that, so that we could be bought out of slavery from sin and be ransomed into the light of his glory. That's why Jesus came. And Habakkuk 2.4 reminds us, the righteous live by faith. We become righteous by faith. We live by faith. And the answer is, what is faith in? Well, faith is in the Son of God, whom God sent to take our place, to become our sin, to receive our judgment, to become our shame so that we, we could receive his glory. He drank the cup of wrath. We're offered the cup of grace. Let me ask you this morning, as God explains to Habakkuk that there's two kinds of people, 
those that are proud and trust in themselves, for those that are humble and are righteous because of faith in Him. Where are you this morning? Is it a, a crisis in your life? Is it a pandemic across the world? Is it a diagnosis you've received? Is it a hard time that you're facing that God may be using to grab hold of your attention, to, un, um, to, to loosen the grip that you have on yourself and on this world so that by faith you would turn and trust Him? So I invite you to do that this morning if you've never done it. And I invite you to do it all over again this morning if you have. That God would be drawing us as his people to his son Jesus, transforming us in such a time as this.